This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Chapter 7 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 7 He saved Gerard's life? What nonsense! If he had, I should have heard about it. Irene spoke warmly. The person she addressed was Haraway, an elderly solicitor, an intimate friend of Hugh and the Merriams. His wife, Selina, who brought him to pay an afternoon call on Irene, watched with amused serenity the discomfiture on his broad and benevolent face. "'It is nonsense,' he protested. "'I'm not in the habit of talking nonsense, I assure you. Am I, Selina?' "'A wife's testimony isn't evidence,' replied Mrs. Haraway. "'But what do you mean?' asked Irene, growing serious. "'Literally what I said. Have you never heard?' "'No. It was in Switzerland, years ago.' Chavas, who was on the trip with them, told me. The two were roped together, suddenly fell, and dangled over a precipice, Coleman lowest. The guide on top couldn't hold them up. The rope was slipping. So Coleman whipped out his knife and cut himself off. And then? Oh, then the guide hauled Gerard up safe and sound. But Hugh? When they looked over to identify the spot where his pulp was lying, they saw him halfway down, miraculously caught on a jag of rock. You might try the game twenty million times without its succeeding. I've had the place pointed out to me. There he remained, some hours, clinging on between heaven and earth. Irene closed her eyes with a shiver. Don't, she said. You make me sick. Funny that Gerard never told you of it. For a clearer case of saving life at the obvious sacrifice of one's own, I've never heard of. Irene's hand trembled a little as she poured out the tea. Mrs. Haraway, unobserved, shook her head reproachfully at her husband, who, interpreting her action rightly, plunged into irrelevant observations. But at that moment Gerard entered the room. Irene turned to him at once, impassively. "'Oh, Gerard, Mr. Haraway has been telling me a horrible story of Hugh saving your life in Switzerland. Is it true?' A shade of annoyance passed over his face. "'Yes,' he replied. "'I remember his doing something of the kind.' "'Oh, do let us talk of something cheerful,' said Mrs. Haraway, and she led the conversation to ordinary topics until the end of the visit. When the Haraways had gone, Irene sat on the arm of Gerard's chair. "'Why did you never tell me?' He grew red, fidgeted a while with his hands. At last, looking up and seeing her luminous eyes fixed upon him, he said gravely, "'There are certain things that a man keeps in his own heart.' The solemnity of the saying somewhat awed her. And Hugh never spoke either. Of course not, said Gerard. What an unpayable debt we owe him. We'll pay it all right when the time comes. What little things women are when compared with men, said Irene. We could never have kept a fact like that locked up in our souls. Gerard accepted the tribute with his usual reserve. As his wife knew, he was not a man to waste words over sentiment. She uttered what she felt were his thoughts. 
I didn't understand your not telling me. But now I do. Those things, when unspoken of, knit two men more firmly together. She was silent for a moment, then changing her tone and grasping Gerard's arm. We won't speak of it again, either, she said. It's horrible to think of. And what should I have done without you? The servant, entering to remove the tea-things, was a signal for Irene to dress for dinner. She left the room, and then Gerard rose, and, walking to the window, took out his pocket-handkerchief and wiped the perspiration from his forehead. The result of her knowledge of this fact in the lives of Hugh and Gerard was an added tenderness of gratitude in her feelings towards the former. During the past few months he had been slipping somewhat apart from her. He had lost his old buoyancy of manner, and it was easy for her feminine intuition to perceive that the change had some radical cause. Now she blamed herself for not having taken the initiative, and offered him more openly the aid of her friendship. The chance of doing so occurred on the following Sunday, when, in response to an urgent little note, Hugh came to lunch. Gerard was absent. Business had summoned him to Edinburgh, where he was likely to remain some time. The two sat down to table, alone together, and while the servant was in the room, talked of divers matters, the waif had been admitted into St. Catherine's School, the institution, which was flourishing, and extending its sphere of benevolence. At last she touched upon literary matters. "'Will it be to see a new volume?' He lifted his shoulders slightly, and fingered the stem of his old German wine-glass. "'When I have regained my lost youth,' he said ironically, "'one must have enthusiasm even for that kind of rubbish. "'Don't look so concerned,' he added with a laugh. "'I'm not hypochondriac yet. "'My view of life is only growing a little more materialistic, that's all. "'I share Peter Bell's conception of the primrose.' He quoted the lines jestingly, and the meal, being over, drew out his cigarette-case and began to smoke. "'You are talking for the sake of talking,' said Irene. "'I wish you wouldn't.' "'You,' she continued, with a certain shy softness that had its charm, "'don't be vexed with me. Tell me what is changing you. You know that I owe to you the existence of all that is dearest to me in the world, and I long so to pay you back a little in the help that friendship can give.' "'You can't do it now, Reenie,' he said abruptly. "'Afterwards you may. That is, if you and Gerard don't think me a pitiful scamp. You won't have long to wait.' The sudden realisation that this was perhaps the last of the brotherly meals he should have with her dismayed him. In a few days he would be either the acknowledged betrothed or the acknowledged husband of another woman, her bitterest enemy. The old dear order had changed. Hitherto he had held a unique and delicate position in her thoughts, that of the loyal friend and honourable lover. Henceforward he would be another woman's husband, which would make an immeasurable difference. He looked round the familiar walls of the cosy dining-room, and then with unconscious wistfulness upon her face in profile. To him there was none more beautiful in all the world. The broad forehead, the delicate, sensitive nose, the strong-pointed chin— the mobile, faintly coloured lips, the eyes, capable of great passion, yet showing habitually a grave and luminous kindness, the noble upsweep of her hair from the temple contours, giving an impression of queenliness, the soft, fair gold of her hair itself, crowning her head too lightly to be a crown, and too individual to be a halo, the head poised with tender dignity upon a broad, full throat, 
all the conflicting features combined harmoniously together to form, in a lover's eyes, a face telling of a great and tender womanhood. And the picture of that other rose before him, beautiful too in its sensuous duskiness, yet stamped forever with his own condemnation of commonness. His glance grew troubled as it met Irene's. "'There is nothing in the wide world that we would not do for you, Hugh,' she said. "'Doing is one thing,' he replied. "'Letting things go on is another. "'I'm afraid you'll come to look upon me as a blackguard, "'and that must make some difference.' "'Nothing will make any difference in our love for you. "'So long as Gerard and I sit opposite here, "'there will be your place always between us. "'Besides, the idea of you being a blackguard is simply silly.' He laughed in spite of his depression. Her tone was emphatic. "'I believe you championed me through a grand jury list of iniquities. I wish you could have split yourself into two in the years past, Rene. You would have kept me out of mischief.' It was Irene's turn to look troubled. "'Do you know, Hugh,' she said in a low voice, "'that lately I have feared I may have spoiled your life?' "'Ah, my dear child!' he cried regaining in a flash all his old vehemence. It is not the missing of the angel's touch that spoils a man's life. He is singularly fortunate to come within the beat of her wings. "'Thank you,' she said, blushing very prettily. "'That is like your old extravagant self.' For a long time afterwards the colour remained in her face. Thousands of women have been called angels, and have thought little of it. But not one has felt otherwise than tremulously abashed when the similitude has come from a man's worshipping sincerity. But that was the end of the conversation. Irene had said her say, and no more was to be gained by dwelling on the topic. When he had gone, she settled down to her correspondence. But for a long while she sat biting the end of her quill pen. "'I wonder who she can be,' she said musingly. "'Of course it was a woman.' She passed in review all their common acquaintance, then shook her head with a smile. This disturbing element in Hugh's life lay outside the circle. The image of Minna Hart never presented itself before her thoughts, for Irene had large ideas and pictured the woman as one of commanding intelligence and brilliant personality. How else to account for the folly of so vigorous a manhood as Hugh's? A noble man, a noble choice. Foolish but sublimely so. She knew little of the ways of men, judged them according to her own ideals, for her life had been spent singularly apart from men. Her mother, a delicate woman, unable to bear the Indian climate, had brought her up in quiet seclusion. She had been a choice spirit, a weaver of dreams, one whose presence is felt like the moonlight through Gothic tracery, a writer of flower-like fairy tales for children, an ethereal being whom it was Irene's impassioned mission to shelter from the rough winds. Her father, once a soldier with a V.C. in the mutiny, afterwards a commissioner of a great Indian province, had appeared to her in brief spells of leave, invested with a halo of glory. On her mother's death she had gone out heartbroken to join him, but only to learn, on arrival at Bombay, that she was fatherless. And then, for the first time, Men, Gerald and Hugh, had come into her life, and she saw them as gods walking. The years had mellowed into a strong, homogeneous character her inherited qualities, the mother's delicate womanliness, 
the father's daring and powers of leadership, and busy contact with the world, had developed the acuteness of her judgment. But the ideals of the girl survived, unprofaned by vulgar touch. The two men to whom she had given her love and friendship still remained as gods, above the baser passions and meaner follies of mankind. Suddenly a face flashed before her, as that, possibly, of the mysterious woman who was involved in Hugh's life. She had never seen it in the flesh, only a photograph of it some years ago, in Hugh's rooms, when she was lunching there with Gerard. She had taken a book from the shelves, and the portrait had fallen out. It represented a woman, tall, resplendent, haughty, cruelly beautiful. The eyes, even in the photograph, littered coldly and dangerously. Irene had uttered a little cry of surprise and admiration. Hugh had taken it from her hands. "'A great beauty,' she had remarked. "'Yes, la belle dame sans merci.' "'Her eyes are cruel.' "'They are ophidian. I don't like you to look at them,' he had replied, throwing the photograph into a drawer. And then he had said with a smile, "'They belong to bold, unhappy, far-off things and battles long ago.' "'Did they?' That was the question she now put to herself, and vainly tried to answer. It is permitted even to the most confiding of women to entertain occasional doubts as to the ingenuousness of bachelor friends. At last she drew a sheet of notepaper from the stationery case in front of her, and inscribed the date. But she paused, and gazed absently at the wall, her mind full of Hugh's dilemma. She felt an unaccountable dislike for the woman with the ophidian eyes. Presently she broke into a little laugh. "'I do believe I am jealous. I must tell Gerard.' End of chapter 7 Chapter 8 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 8 An anxious face met Hugh as he was shown into the drawing-room. Minna had grown into a woman since her illness, and had hardened considerably during the process. Instead of the lazy uplifting of silky lashes, veiling swimming eyes, with which she had been wont to greet him, she met him with a glance as keen as his own. The racial spirit of bargain revealed itself in her expression. Once more he was struck by the latent power of strength and hardness. She wore a dark red dinner-dress and heavy gold bracelets, and a diamond star shone in the dark clusters of her hair. "'I'm glad you have come early,' she said, receiving his kiss mechanically. "'I wanted to have a word with you before Papa comes down.' They walked slowly to the fireplace, and stood turned towards each other, leaning against the mantelpiece. "'Well,' he said, "'when are you going to tell Papa?' "'After dinner, over the walnuts and the wine.' "'Don't. Wait until you have said good-bye to me.' "'How shall I let you know the result? You will be anxious.' "'Do you mind coming to me afterwards, the old way?' "'Not at all. But I shall have to wait outside until the house is quiet.' "'There will be a nice fire upstairs to warm you.' "'And my wife's heart.' "'That depends,' she replied, with a curious smile. "'Shall you be perishing for it?' "'We must try to win back to each other again, Minna,' he said stretching out his hand so as to touch lightly her cheek. "'It would not be hard, for circumstances will be more favourable than they have been.' 
I'm afraid I haven't played a very noble part, my dear. And when a man is conscious of that, he vents his spleen upon others. That's not very noble either, but it's miserable human nature. Do you understand? I'm glad you see that you have treated me badly, she said. At any rate, it's a hopeful beginning. The thought of her failure to grasp his meaning was dancing irritatingly in his mind as he stepped forward to greet Israel Hart, who at that moment entered the room. "'Very pleased to see you, Mr. Coleman. Sorry I'm late. Kept in the city. Cold, isn't it?' He rubbed his soft palms together and held them out to the blaze of the fire. "'How's business? Been letting loose lots of lucky jailbirds lately?' "'No, oh, we always believe firmly in our clients' innocence.' retorted Hugh, with a laugh. "'That's more than I do in mine,' said the money-lender. The young man returned a light answer, but curled his moustache, and drew himself up with unconscious haughtiness. The touch of vulgarity jarred upon him. When one has to humble one's pride before a man, one is apt to become supersensitive of such things. Unfortunately for Hugh, Israel evinced a more genial and familiar mood than usual, and during the elaborate meal that followed, allowed himself privileges of illusion that a finer taste would have restrained. Aware of the senselessness of feeling chafed at what on other occasions he would have let pass almost unnoticed, Hugh conversed with a great outward show of good humour. But once or twice he caught Minna's eyes fixed on him in a malicious smile, which irritated him still further. The courses seemed infinite. His host referred to each, now praising the merits of his cook, now estimating its money value. As he grew more genial, the more did he throw off the cloak of breeding that at times he well assumed, and displayed the inevitable impregnating colour of his mind. To the man of artistic temperament, money had no intrinsic value. It merely represented power over the beauty and charm of life. To the Jew financier, the making of it was an absorbing pursuit. Its possession was an end in itself. He had in his being an atmosphere of money, could scarcely conceive different environment, just as the average gamekeeper cannot realise a life in which rabbits and partridges pay no part. As the bookmaker talked inevitable turf, so Israel talked inevitable money. "'Has my daughter ever shown you those bracelets, Mr. Coleman? They're almost historical. Been in a great nobleman's family for centuries. Take one off and show it to Mr. Coleman.' The present countess came to grief horse-racing, applied to me for money. Those were part of the security. The same lady tried to do me with some paste to diamonds, but I was down too sharp. Solid things, aren't they? "'I come in for a lot of the plunder, don't I, papa?' said Minna, gaily. Hugh winced. Hitherto she had always expressed the profoundest distaste for her father's profession. Was this speech genuine? Was it pure malice? or was its intention that of keeping a stern parent in good humour? To save the situation he handed it back to Minna with a little courtly bow. "'It has never adorned a fairer arm,' he said. Minna's quicker ear caught an ironical note, and she bit her lip. But Israel was delighted. "'I like to hear a young man pay a pretty compliment,' he said, rolling back in his chair. "'The art is dying out.' When Minna rose, Hugh held the door open for her. On passing him, she whispered, "'You are making a wonderful impression. Keep it up.' He bowed, closed the door upon her, and came round to the fire, hating the part so bluntly defined by his wife. 
To have to cajole this somewhat vulgar old Jew of shady profession, his actual father-in-law, it was training his pride in the mud, but he'd been doing so ever since the disastrous day of his marriage. A little extra soiling, he reflected cynically, would make but faintly appreciable difference. The grave butler entered with coffee and cigars. Hugh declined the latter. "'Better have one,' said Israel, carefully selecting. "'Don't get this sort of thing every day. I give seven pound ten a hundred for them.' "'I'm a cigarette-smoker,' said Hugh, but still—' He accepted a cigar courteously, for he knew that a man is apt to be ruffled when you refuse an eighteen-penny Havana, and he had good reasons for not wishing to ruffle his host. Presently they went upstairs. Minna moved to the piano. Usually she played with taste and correctness. Tonight she strummed abominably. "'We are not quite in the mood for Chopin,' said Hugh, who was turning over her leaves. She stopped dead. "'No, this is more suitable to one's irritation.' And she plunged into Stephen Heller's Tarantella. The old man, dozing in his chair, did not notice the change. "'Don't give it away at once.' she said in a low voice as she played, begin with a formal demand in marriage and see how he takes it. "'I shall do whatever seems to me judicious,' he answered curtly. "'Remember I am an interested party,' she retorted. "'There is such a thing as money to be considered, however much you may despise it.' "'You may trust to my not forgetting,' he replied. The evening was over at last. He bade Minna good-bye. "'I should like to say a few words to you, Mr. Hart, before I go,' he remarked on his way downstairs. His host, cordiality itself, showed him into his study, poked the fire, and lighted a cigar. "'Business?' "'Yes.' "'About the loan. I was wanting to discuss it. Best now, when we're comfortable. Wait a moment. Allow me. What is the chance of your being left a small legacy?' "'None whatever, I fear,' replied Hugh. "'Stevlish hard lines on me, Coleman, you know. "'When I advanced you that money, I thought your inheritance was as safe as a mortgage. "'You are aware it is not my usual way of doing business. "'This is not an actual reversion. It's only a convenient term. "'But I liked you, and somehow it's pleasant now and then to do a friend a good turn.' "'I am deeply aware of all that,' said Hugh. "'And as I mentioned, I considered the security safe.' "'So did I. You can scarcely blame me.' "'I believe you.' said the old man cordially. "'You meant to play square, I know. Otherwise you wouldn't be here, would you? But all the same, if your uncle were to die to-morrow, I should be down out of five thousand pounds. I don't pretend to say that five thousand pounds would break me. Thank God I can run to six figures with something bigger than a one in front any day, when all is called in. But money is money. Now, as a gentleman, would you feel morally justified in abiding by your legal rights?' "'No,' said Hugh. "'I wouldn't, but circumstances—' "'I know,' interrupted the moneylender, with upraised hand. "'They aren't quite yet what they ought to be. "'But you are going to be a successful man. "'They will alter. "'Now I have a friendly proposal to make to you.' "'And I am coming with one to you, Mr. Hart,' said Hugh with a smile. "'And I think you'd better hear mine first. "'You consider me an honest man?' "'I do. "'And you don't disapprove of me personally?' "'On the contrary, I am very pleased and proud to call you a friend of mine. "'You wouldn't have had my money otherwise.' "'Then, Mr. Hart, you make easier what I have to say. "'It concerns your daughter, Mr. Hart.' "'What? Minna? My daughter?' said the old man, with a sharp change of tone. 
I have the honour to ask you for her hand in marriage. You? An indescribable change came over the old man's face. Instantly it lost the sleek and coarse materialism of the money-getter, the half-sensual content of the easy-going man who had well dined, the patronising geniality of the prosperous host. A fire glowed in his eyes. His Jewish features seemed to grow more prominent. The grey beard framed a strange patriarchal dignity. The Jew, proud and unconquered through centuries of oppression, overwhelming all other accidents of life in the eternal arrogance of race, was regarding, with angry and incredulous scorn, the Gentile, the hybrid child of yesterday. "'You!' he repeated, almost insultingly. The young man's quick blood flamed in his cheeks. He started to his feet. "'Yes, I. Why shouldn't I?' he cried in a loud voice. At that moment the door opened, and the butler entered, bearing a tray with spirit-case and glasses. Hugh turned quickly, and bent towards the fire with a spill to light a cigarette. The butler set his tray-load on the great library table, secured the windows of the room, and drew the curtains, which had remained looped back. "'You need not sit up, Samuels,' said Israel. "'I will let Mr. Kerman out and lock up.' With discreet thanks the butler withdrew. Hugh threw his cigarette into the grate, put his hands into his pockets, and faced his host once more. "'I consider my proposal is quite justifiable, Mr. Hart.' "'Are you aware what you are asking?' "'Yes, I am a poor man. She is rich. I owe you money. But still—' "'Money? What has money to do with it?' interrupted the Jew grandly. "'If you had the rent-roll of the Groveners, it would make no difference.' "'If it's a question of religion, I always thought your views were latitudinarian.' "'I suppose Minna knows of this,' said Israel, apparently disregarding the remark. "'Certainly.' "'Mr. Coleman, I have no wish to wound your feelings, but I would sooner have my daughter dead at my feet than see her married to a Christian.' "'Then it is useless to ask for your consent?' "'Quite useless.' "'In that case I fear we shall have to do without it. I am exceedingly sorry to cause you pain, but the marriage will take place.' Israel rose from his chair and poured some whisky into the glasses, and made a courteous motion with his hand towards the siphon of soda-water. "'We stand on opposite sides of a great gulf. I am a Jew, you are a Gentile. We need not discuss the question. I can't restrain my daughter from carrying out her wishes, but I can solemnly curse her after the manner of my people, and cut her adrift from me for ever. I shall warn her. The wrath of the Almighty will be on her head. She will also be disinherited. "'That will ease my mind of a great burden,' said Hugh. "'To show you that it is no animosity towards you personally that influences me,' continued Israel, with great dignity, inconceivable of the man of an hour before, "'I will let you see a copy of my will made some time ago, when the thought of you as a suitor never crossed my mind.' He drew a bunch of keys from his pocket, and opened the great safe. From a locked compartment he drew forth a document, and folding it so that only the particular paragraph should be visible, he showed it to Hugh. Nothing could be more explicit. In the event of Minna marrying a Gentile, all the estate would pass from her and be devoted to specified Jewish charities. "'I hope Minna will be able to persuade you to a more favourable view of the case,' said Hugh. My daughter can do many things, but not that. She despises her people, I know. 
but she shall marry among them or be cut off from her congregation for ever. There seems nothing more to be said, Mr. Hart, said Hugh. You quite realise that when my daughter leaves this house, the clothes that cover her will be her sole possession? I have told you I am immensely relieved. As to our business relations, they can be discussed on a future occasion. Proud as he was of his birth and breeding, Hugh could not but be abashed before this pride of race that transformed the vulgar usurer into a gentleman of fine feeling. Israel's words and attitude had not conveyed the slightest reproach on the score of fortune-hunting. He had cast neither his poverty nor his debt in his teeth. A great feeling of respect for the old man rose in his heart. "'Believe me,' he said, after a turn across the room, "'if fate would allow it, I would give up the idea for your sake.' "'We all make our destiny,' replied the old man bitterly. "'I have made mine.' A few moments later Hugh took his leave. Israel accompanied him to the front door, shook hands with him, and, turning out the light in the hall, went back to his study. Then he remembered that he had forgotten to secure the door. "'I will do it afterwards,' he said to himself. He picked up the will, glanced through it, and replaced it in the safe. For half an hour he sat in deep thought, then rose, went upstairs, and returned, bringing with him a small padlocked ledger. He sat down in his writing-chair by the table, but remained in deep thought, tapping the unopened book with his fingers. My own daughter, Sarah's child, married to a Christian. Long he sat in an awful loneliness, his eyes dull and weary, looking at the spectres of the past. At length he took from a drawer at his side a double sheet of blue foolscap, and dipped a pen very slowly in the ink. I, Israel Hart, will and bequeath. No, he said, not now. I must think it out again. Ask God for guidance. He rose, put the paper in the fire, and sank into the great armchair close by. And there he sat, thinking, thinking. At last his eyelids closed, and he slept. Hugh went out into a night of utter blackness and icy sleet. Great splashes of half-melted snow fell against his face and oozed down in liquid. He made his way along the drive and out of the front gate. Dimly through the darkness the sound reached him of the Sunnington clock striking the half-hour. Half-past eleven. He would wait until twelve before keeping his appointment with Minna. A mile up the Heath Road and a mile back would fill up the time. He walked on through the darkness, splashing through the mud and drawing his head down into the collar of his ulster so as to keep the frozen rain from his neck. Not a soul was visible. On his return he saw a bull's-eye lantern flash within the grounds of a house. It was a policeman examining the fastenings. Hugh hurried on, turned down the lane that led from the Heath Road to the wood and wastelands behind the Lindens. At last he came to the brick wall enclosing the property. A key in his possession opened a small side-door, leading into a garden, which Minna's caprice had made so exclusively her own that entrance to it was not practicable from any portion of the grounds. On the right were greenhouses, closing off egress from the back, while, following the line of the side of the house, a thick box hedge ran to meet the front wall, and thus separated the little pleasance from the front lawn, through which curved the carriage-drive. 
The house was in total darkness, scarcely discernible against the pitch-black sky. Hugh crossed the turf, walking warily so as to avoid the shrubs with which it was thickly planted, ever and anon thrusting his hand through the icy, dripping foliage. "'Thank heaven this is the last time,' he muttered to himself. He came to the house to whose walls stretched the carpet of turf. A low veranda, reached by a flight of steps and communicating with the interior by means of French windows, now closely barred, extended not quite the breadth of the building. Masking its end rose a tall, clipped yew. Behind this he crept, and a low window, whose sash he lifted, thanks to Minna's previous unbarring, admitted him into the house. It was a tiny chamber, used by Minna as a dark room during intermittent photographic fever. Outside this was a heavily carpeted staircase, up which Hugh stole noiselessly. The handle turned smoothly beneath his grasp, and he found himself at last in his wife's presence. The large room was lit only by the leaping flames of the fire, the threw quick flashes on the richly curtained bed, and the luxurious appointments of a wealthy woman's bedchamber. In a long chair before the fire, the tips of fur-lined slippers thrust on bare feet, resting on the fender, lay Minna. She wore a rich dressing-gown, with lace at throat and wrists. Her dark hair clustered about her shoulders. A delicate odour of toilette washes and powder hung on the warmth of the room. Hugh stopped for a moment on the threshold with a little catch at his breath. The subtle charm of the woman's shrine stole gratefully over him. After all, it was sweet to have the right of such intimacy. He took off his dripping ulster and laid it aside before coming forward. Then he stooped and kissed her. "'Oh, how wet you are!' she cried, with a little grimace, rubbing her cheek with her handkerchief. "'Do come and dry yourself. You will find your slippers in the secret drawer, as usual.' She handed him a key, which he took from her dressing-gown pocket, and while he was changing his wet boots, "'Well,' she said, "'what news?' "'Bad. Your father will not consent, because I am a Christian. We shall have to elope.' "'Then you haven't told him all?' "'No, I thought it wiser. There seemed no necessity. It would be better for us to get married again, publicly.' He drew up an armchair by her side, close to the fire, and, leaning forward, warmed himself appreciatively. "'It's an infernal night. You don't know how sweet and cosy it is here.' "'It was kind of you to come.' she said, with cold politeness. Her tone chilled the reviving glow of his imagination, which already was beginning to picture gentle possibilities of their married life. He remained silent for some time. When he spoke again, it was in less genial accents. "'I am afraid, Minna, that in marrying me you have unwittingly made a tremendous sacrifice.' "'Not more than most women, I suppose?' "'Unfortunately, yes.' With much tact and delicacy, he put her in possession of all the details of his recent interview. She said not a word until he had finished, but clenched her fingers on the arms of her chair, and looked rigidly into the fire. "'I had an awful horror of this,' she said in a toneless voice. "'It will make an enormous difference to you. God knows I realise it. But after all, we shall not starve.' She darted a quick sidelong glance at him. Then, with a shudder, put her hands before her face. "'I knew it would be woe and misery,' she said, "'whilst we were walking away from that horrible registrar's office. "'Oh, God, I wish it had never been!' "'It need not be misery. "'It shan't be misery, if I can help it.' "'You?' 
You have robbed me of my birthright. Perhaps your taunt is just, Minna, he replied, a scornful generosity forgetting that with her had lain considerable initiative in the matter of the marriage. But it can scarcely mend our happiness. Happiness? she echoed contemptuously. A poky little house and rechauffé's dinners and a cheap gown once a year? The gingerbread would have been pretty enough ten months ago. Now the guilt is off. With great patience, knowing that on him the man, the stronger, the more rational, the less in love of the two, rested the responsibility of the disaster. He strove to reassure her, to paint their coming life together in the most cheerful colours. Grand style of living he could not offer her, but comfort, certain social position, clever and bright society, all that was within his reach. He had done her a wrong in marrying her, would repair it by devoting the rest of his life to her happiness. He pleaded to a hardened heart. She either listened stonily or broke into petulant recriminations. The talk grew spasmodic, interrupted by long gaps of silence. Imperceptibly, the night wore on. Once he noticed that she had fallen into a weary doze. He watched for a long time her face lit up by the flickering flames. How hard and common and sullen it had grown! He read in it the history of the last few months, of her previous life, of her soul. A revulsion of feeling turned his heart against her, and against himself. The man with ambitions and wide interests in the world of action revolted against the slavery to such a woman. There was little use in staying longer. He rose to go. His movement startled her, and she opened her eyes. "'Don't go yet. I'm not asleep. I've been thinking.' He sat down again, watched her as she looked into the fire with eyes that in the fantastic light seemed haggard, and waited for her to speak. "'I cannot forfeit my money,' she said. "'It would kill me. Even if I loved you, I couldn't do it. And you have made me hate you. Our living together as you propose would be a ghastly mockery. I could not share the same room with you any more,' she continued hurriedly. "'Not for millions.' "'I should not desire it he replied coldly. Then why should we not keep our secret, as we have kept it, and part now, for ever and ever? She turned eager, imploring eyes upon him, yet hard as agates. I don't quite understand, he said. It is not difficult. You have told no one of our marriage? Not a soul. Is it likely that it will ever be made public from the registrar's office? Practically impossible. Don't you see, then? The only interested witness is as faithful as a dog. The other witness and the registrar have forgotten our existence. Don't you see that, for all practical purposes, the fact of our marriage lies buried in a book in Brighton that no one will ever look at? That, if we give ourselves out as unmarried as the end of our lives, no one will be a bit the wiser. We will never see each other again except accidentally in the streets. We will wipe each other clean out of our lives and start afresh. Isn't that possible? Yes, he replied. It is perfectly feasible. I shall keep my money, spend it as I like, go where I like. You shall be free to do whatever you want. Marry, if you choose. Why shouldn't you? It happens to be a felony, said Hugh. That would be your own lookout. I should never take any steps to prosecute, you may be quite sure. Will you give me the same freedom? You must let me think before I answer. 
he said. Take your time, she replied, and lay back again in her chair, covering her eyes with her hands. For the second time he replenished the fire. From outside came still the confused soughing of the wind, and strange creakings filled the sleeping house. The wing that Minna occupied was far apart from the other bedrooms. Only Anna, who was sleeping close by in Minna's dressing-room, was within earshot. At any time they could talk in moderate tones and be secure from discovery. On that blustering night scarcely any caution was necessary. Absorbed in this final settlement of their lives, neither of them noted the passing of the hours. After a long interval of deep consideration, Hugh agreed to the main of her proposal, and there followed a full and anxious debate about points of detail. "'What do you propose to do to get through your life?' he asked at length. "'I shall go abroad, to gay places. I shall procure a companion to suit me. Money can do most things. I may first go with Anna to Smyrna and hunt up my mother's people. They may prove interesting.' I can't live on any longer here. I thought not. It was to escape this that you were willing to live with me, had your father consented. Exactly. Another long pause. Hugh viewed the new position in all its aspects. Humanly speaking, the secret of their marriage was exclusively their own. Anything like a reconciliation was out of the question. If he had spoiled her life by marrying her, he could make reparation by this irregular divorce yet he felt bound to give her old love one more chance. "'Are you certain, Minna, that you care for me no longer, in no way?' "'Oh, don't reopen that,' she said. "'All that was killed forever at Brighton in December. "'And even if it wasn't, do you think I could willingly give up two hundred thousand pounds for you?' She laughed scornfully. "'You indeed set a high value upon yourself.' "'Do you know?' she added with a sudden firmness to which the deep tones of her voice gave a savage intensity. I would commit any crime rather than give up that money. All such talk is useless. Let me have your final answer and be done with it. Very well, he replied decisively. I will grant you your absolute freedom on one condition, that this compact between us is irrevocable. It shall be. Will you swear to it on your side, a solemn binding oath? I give you my word of honour. I don't much believe in a man's honour, she said contemptuously. An oath is different. I will do as you like, he replied. She rose, vanished for a moment among the shadows of the room, and returned with an old testament. I swear on this, by the God of my fathers, that in no circumstances whatever will I reveal the fact of my marriage with you. I renounce you for ever as my husband. I renounce all claims upon your support, sympathy, and consideration. I swear never to interfere in any shape or form with your actions, leaving you free to marry again without any previous notification to me. So help me God. She stood deathly pale, her teeth chattering, worn out by the stiffness and exhaustion of her long vigil, and handed him the book that she had held in shaking fingers. "'Since you desire a formal oath,' he said, "'I will take it in the form you have prescribed.' And there he renounced her eternally, as she had just before renounced him. He looked at his watch. To his utter astonishment it was past six o'clock. With an exclamation of dismay he set about preparing for departure. 
How the night had passed so quickly he could not tell. "'There is no need for you to keep these any longer,' he said, holding up the slippers. She herself had worked them for him in a fit of adoring industry. "'No, nor the other things.' She took a small bundle neatly wrapped up in brown paper and handed it to him. He thrust it beneath his arm. "'Good-bye, Minna,' he said, holding out his hand. "'We did not swear to be enemies. May your new life be happier than the old.' "'It could not well be more miserable,' she answered. But she gave him her hand, cold and nerveless. "'Poor child,' he said. "'God help you.' He turned, left the room, and then the house, by the way in which he had entered. A fine snow was falling through the not-yet-lifting darkness. He hurried homewards blindly, thinking of nothing but the strange chapter of the night, his heart relieved already of enormous burdens, but his temples throbbing with the strain of casting them off. He met not a soul until he had passed the Merriam's house. Then, as he neared the town, dark, straggling figures of workmen passed him, trudging on sleepily through the snow and darkness. The hall-porter was just opening the great outer door of the mansion when he arrived. "'Cold morning, sir,' said the porter. "'Bitter,' he replied mechanically, and he sprang up the stone stairs. End of chapter 8 Chapter 9 of Idols by William John Locke This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers Chapter 9 he threw off his dress clothes with the repulsion that every man feels for such garments after an all-night sitting. He was tired out, capable only of attending to the trivial and personal things that immediately concerned him. Thanked God, with the fervour which the average man expresses for none but the trifling mercies of Providence, that no case compelled his attendance in court at ten o'clock. Stretched himself, yawned, stumbled shiveringly into bed, where, drawing the bedclothes tightly around him, he sank at once into the heavy sleep of the weary man. A confused sound broke upon his slumbers. In a waking dream it seemed to him that Minna was battering with a hammer at some formless material object, which his mind identified as marriage. He awoke to find the noise that of knocking at his door. In reality he had slept some hours, but he was conscious of only a few minutes' repose. He called out angrily to be left alone. The knocking continued. He called out again. Then a strange voice was heard. "'Can I see you for a minute, sir?' Exasperated, he jumped out of bed and opened the door. "'What the devil is it?' He recoiled in some astonishment at the sight of Israel Hart's butler, Samuels. The man looked greasy, unkempt, agitated. Behind him flashed the retreating figure of Mrs. Parsons, the porter's wife. "'Come in, if you want to speak to me,' said Hugh for the cold draught was sweeping down the passage through the open flat door. Sam was obeyed. "'An awful thing, sir. I think you'd better come round at once. My master was murdered during the night.' If he had suddenly received a blow from a life-preserver, Hugh could not have been, for the moment, more stunned and dazed. "'Murdered? Your master? Last night?' He stared at the man. It was inconceivable. The incredible horror of it was that he had passed the night keenly awake in the house. Israel Hart murdered, a few yards away from him, without uttering a cry, giving out a sound in the death-struggle. It passed realisation. "'Yes, sir, in his study,' said the butler, with tears in his eyes and with quivering lips. "'The housemaid found him at quarter to seven this morning.' 
How did it happen? Someone needed me something heavy, just over here. The man passed his hand upwards from his temple to his skull. It's been terrible work this morning, he added with a shiver. The first shock over, Hugh recovered his balance. I, I will come with you at once. Tell me the details while I dress. Amadi hurried into his clothes, and afterwards ate a crust of bread and drank a cup of coffee. Samuels told his story. In brief, what had occurred was this. The housemaid, coming to lay the study fire, had discovered her master lying huddled together on the hearthrug. As she approached with her candle, a glance had showed her a streak of blood in his grey hair. She had screamed, rushed up to Samuels, and given the alarm. He had come down, seen the body, recognised that life was extinct, had sent out at once for a doctor and a policeman. Pending their arrival, he caused Miss Hart to be roused by her maid, and had remained in the study to prevent any of the servants disturbing the arrangements of the room. Miss Hart had come downstairs, wild with terror, and had fainted away, so that she had to be carried up to bed again. The policeman had come in the course of a few minutes, followed soon afterwards by the doctor, who was a near neighbour. Then the inspector had arrived, and later a Scotland Yard official, and they were at present engaged in investigations. There did not seem to be the slightest clue. It was an awful mystery. "'And Miss Hart, how was she when you left?' asked Hugh, as they went down the steps of the mansion. "'Seems she came to very soon, sir,' answered Samuels, "'and then she would dress and come down, and now she's bearing up wonderfully. It was she and the inspector that agreed you were to be fetched, as you were the last person, except the other, that saw him alive.' "'Yes,' said Hugh. "'I remember him telling you to go to bed.' "'Oh, I saw him again after that, sir, when he went upstairs.' "'Then how could I be the last?' Besides, I thought he was found of the study. I don't follow you. He went upstairs to get something from his bedroom safe, and then went down again. I was seen to the fire in his room, and he told me again to go to bed. I thought he was still there, sir. What time was that? He asked sharply. That was five minutes to twelve. Well, I, I left him at half-past eleven, said Hugh. They arrived at the Lindens. A knot of idlers were standing at the gates, discussing the straws of information that floated among them. A policeman on duty marched slowly round the drive, his footprints indistinguishable from countless others that had broken up the thin and melting coat of snow. On the steps stood an inspector in talk with a couple of pressmen, who were taking notes with red, cold fingers. The inspector touched his cap as Hugh came up. "'Shocking affair, sir. If you will go in, I will see you in a moment.' Hugh entered, went up to the fireplace in the hall, and warmed his hands, wondering at the force of routine which had caused this fire to be lit on a morning of such upheaval. The slight sound of an opening door made him turn, and then he saw Minna's pale and haggard face. She beckoned to him hurriedly and disappeared into the dining-room. He followed her, shutting the door behind him. The sight of the room brought a fresh shock of associations. Was there ever such a ghastly morrow to a feast? Minna stood by the table, one hand behind her, resting upon it, her eyes meeting his in dull defiance. She checked brusquely his first half-articulated exclamation of sympathy. "'Yes, I know all that you could tell me. We can't waste time over it. Have you spoken to the inspector?' "'Not yet.' "'Thank God I've seen you first. This does not interfere with our compact. He won't say a word about seeing me last night?' "'Certainly not,' he replied, turning away from her with a feeling of repugnance. "'As far as your father is concerned, I left this house at half-past eleven. She closed her eyes with a sigh of relief. "'I was afraid you might betray me, not willfully, but indiscreetly.' 
"'Has this been your dominant emotion all the time?' he said harshly. "'I am glad our ways lie separate.' "'I have my interests to protect,' she said. He shrugged his shoulders, walked past her to the fireplace, and leant his broad shoulders against the black marble mantelpiece. Her selfishness dumbfounded him. Her eyes bore no trace of tears, her attitude not a suggestion of grief. Ill and worn she looked, but from shock and strain and anxiety, not from sorrow. Had she no human feeling? And yet she was the same woman whose heart had throbbed with wild tumult against his, whose eyes had glowed with a burning passion in their slumberous depths, whose voice had melted into murmurings like the deep notes of the mating dove. Once he had compared her in his mind to a volcano. The aptness of the similitude occurred to him now. She had passed through her period of eruption. Now the molten fire of her nature was cold and unlovely lava. She moved suddenly from the table with a dragging step of exhaustion, and flung herself into a chair, and lay with her head bowed upon her arm. "'I know how you judge me,' she said hoarsely. "'You've always judged me. That is one of the things that made me hate you. You think I ought to be in floods of tears?' "'So I should have been if it had not been for last night. "'But I must protect myself now or never. "'No one can do it for me. "'How was I to know that you would be discreet? "'I had ruined staring me in the face. "'I've strained every nerve to keep my wits till you came. "'You can't tell the agony of the strain. "'How could you? "'And this awful horror overwhelming me. "'Oh, God, don't you think I feel the horror of it?' She did not raise her face, but remained with it buried on her arm in an attitude of profound prostration. Soon a shudder ran through her frame. She began to moan and sob. An impulse of pity brought him to her side. "'If I could be of any help to you, Miller, you only have to command me.' But she did not heed him, only waved him away with her free hand. "'Go, leave me,' she said, scarce audibly. "'If you want me, send for me, and I will come,' he said. He left her, went into the hall where he found the inspector. To the latter's questions he gave what formal answers lay in his power. A news-agency representative joined them soon afterwards. Gradually he acquainted himself with all the meagre facts in the possession of the police. Mr. Hart had been killed outright by one blow of a blunt, heavy instrument. Death must have occurred during the small hours. The safe in the study was found open. The only article apparently missing from it was a black deed-box— which Mr. Hart's confidential clerk, who had been summoned immediately, stated to have contained bonds. There were no other signs of robbery. A thorough inspection of the premises had discovered no traces of burglarous entry, the only possibility of which was by means of a window that had been left unsecured. Footprints there were none, owing to the slight fall of snow. For the present the police were entirely at a loss. "'Do you know if Mr. Hart had any enemies?' asked the inspector. A man in his profession comes into intimate relations with many people whom he could not call his friends, replied Hugh, but I am not acquainted with any of his clients. As a private friend I always found him kind and generous. Could you supply me with any details concerning his private life? asked the pressman. I am scarcely in a position to do so, replied Hugh, in a manner of the precluded importunity. He felt sick at heart unhinged, and longed to be freed from the sordid horror of the house. His own hidden yet intimate connection with the tragedy of the night oppressed him like an incubus. It was he who had started the poor old man upon a train of thought and emotion that kept him from his bed, where the murderer, if safe robbery had been his only aim, might not have sought him. 
It was he who was responsible for the unguarded window by which the murderer had entered. And then the fact that he'd been beneath the same roof discussing with the daughter her inheritance, while the father was being done to death downstairs, loomed grotesquely hideous before his eyes. It was like a situation in some vulgar melodrama, where simultaneous action is represented in two separate and adjacent interiors. At last he escaped police officials and reporters, and found himself in the Heath Road, glad to breathe the outer air again, grey and misty as it was, covering the Heath like a pall. Outside the Merriams he paused, seized with a sudden desire for the comfort of Irene's voice and the sympathy of her clear eyes. Mere intimacy, too, required that he should inform her of the catastrophe. He entered with the latch-key which he possessed by virtue of his intimacy, and knocked at the door of the smoking-room, where Irene always worked in the mornings. As soon as he appeared on the threshold, she rose quickly from her writing-table. "'You've come to tell me, I know it. The whole of Sunnington knows it. A dreadful thing. That poor little girl!' "'I have just come from the house,' he said gravely. "'I had a short interview with her. It's a terrible shock, of course, but she's bearing it pretty well, better than I should have expected. You know I was dining there yesterday, so I was nearly the last person who saw him alive. For that reason they came to fetch me this morning. "'Tell me what you know about it,' she said, drawing a chair towards him. He sat down and put her in possession of the facts, as far as they were known to the police. She listened intently, sitting by her writing-table, supporting her chin on her hand. "'And have they no clue at all?' None. The poor old fellow found murdered, a deep box gone from the safe, a window left unsecured. Practically speaking, that is all they can go upon. "'Do you know, Hugh,' said Irene, "'I am convinced it was no common burglar. It was some desperate man who borrowed money on some securities, which he knew lay in that box, and he committed this crime to get them back. He was hiding in the house all the evening, possibly somewhere in the study, and he opened that window escape by the back lane.' He smiled, in spite of himself, at her feminine certainty. "'I wish they would put you in charge of the investigations, Reenie,' he said. "'But don't you think my theory is quite plausible?' she asked, accepting his remark with a humble knitting of her brows. He admitted that it was, observed that he had spoken not in satire, but in admiration. The police were standing about there, not knowing where to turn next. "'Well, the first thing,' said Irene, "'would be to list the securities in the deep-box.' there must be a record of them somewhere, and then to investigate the actions last night of each of the clients to whom the securities belonged. "'I never thought of that,' he exclaimed sharply. "'Yes, they'll do that, undoubtedly.' Irene went on to speak of Minna, of the girl's friendless isolation, of the help that she herself might have offered had Minna not so resolutely repelled her advances. She would be even willing now to risk a breach of good taste if she could befriend her. She asked his advice. Her great-heartedness drew him very near to her, so near that it required a moment's struggle to stifle the craving to tell her all the miserable history of his marriage and his own connection with the night's tragedy. How could he advise her in the matter, knowing as he did Minna's inveterate jealousy and dislike? "'I think she will have some of her own people with her,' he remarked mendaciously. "'She said something about it this morning.' He rose to bid her good-bye. As she took his hand, she scanned his face earnestly. "'You're looking so ill and worn,' she said affectionately. "'Much more so than when you came in. It has been all this discussion.' "'I'm afraid it is the want of my breakfast,' he said, forcing a laugh. 
all Irina's protective instincts were aroused. "'No breakfast, and you were going away without asking for anything to eat? Sit down at once and let me get something for you.' She ran out of the room in her impulsive way, leaving him standing on the hearthrug. "'Good God!' he said, throwing his hat and gloves onto the chair. "'I never thought of it.' And he remained staring blankly at a picture in front of him until Irene returned. End of chapter 9 Chapter 10 of Idols by William John Locke. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 10 From that moment Hugh walked on the edge of a volcano. To keep his thoughts from dizzy hoverings over the abyss, he chained them down with desperate will to the work he had on hand. In a week's time would begin the February sittings of the Central Criminal Court. Good fortune had given him more than his usual share of briefs. One, a blackmailing case, made intricate by medical complications. His client, the defendant, a man in good position. "'If you can pull it off, Coleman,' said old Haraway, the solicitor, who had known Hugh from boyhood, "'you'll go up like a released balloon.' He toiled at it night and day, and held aloof from his kind. The publicity of his connection with the murder sickened him. He took cabs to and from his chambers, lest his ears should be irritated by railway carriage discussions. Minna he saw once, at the inquest, dressed in black, closely veiled, attended by the old Syrian woman. For appearance sake he had conducted her to her broom. He had asked her one question on the way thither. Was she staying at the Lindens? She replied in the affirmative. She had hitherto refused offers of friendly asylums. And as sympathy and protection sufficed her. What might happen later she did not know. Perhaps she would accompany Anna to Smyrna. The inquest resulted in a verdict of willful murder against some person unknown. The next day he attended the funeral, walked, a haughty and tortured Gentile, amid a host of serene and money-lending Jews. The papers naturally reported the fact. He did not go to the Miriams. Gerard's arrival in town was the occasion of a peremptory command to dinner from Irene. He declined, alleging press of work. Gerard, sent by Irene for tidings of the absentee, burst in upon him at ten o'clock that night, and found him sitting with dishevelled hair on the edge of a tumultuous sea of brief papers. The genuineness of his excuse was obvious. He forced, however, his visitor into a chair, handed the tobacco jar, and poured out whiskies and sodas. Gerard eyed the quantity of spirits in Hugh's glass, also noticed the corkscrew in the cork of the three parts emptied whisky bottle. "'I say, you're going it pretty strong, aren't you?' he remarked, with a significant nod. "'What is the matter? Work? Worry?' "'Both,' said Hugh, putting down his tumbler and sweeping his moist moustache in his fierce way. "'The work to get over the worry, the whisky to get over the work.' "'What's the worry? This heart affair?' "'I suppose so. It's got on my nerves.' "'I can't see why the devil it should,' said Gerard, with a little contemptuous laugh. He was of that kind of men who deny the existence of nerves. "'By the way,' he added after a while, "'they were damned slack at that inquest. I was just saying so to Reenie, with the safe open and ledgers and things lying about the table when the old man was found. Had I been the coroner, I should have wanted to know the subject of your last conversation with the deceased.' To his surprise, Hugh sprang to his feet in a great excitement. "'For heaven's sake, old man, don't talk about it in that cold-blooded way. I'm in a devil of a mess. I don't mind telling you now. 
but keep it dark from reading. I owe Hart five thousand pounds on my expectations from the Branfield property. He had the bomb, of course. I believe it was in that stolen D-box. I was the last person in the house. No one saw me leave. Has Rini told you her theory of the murder? Gerard looked at him and whistled. That's how you staved off the bankruptcy, was it? I often wondered. Yes, that was how, said Hugh laconically. Gerard reflected, pulling at his pipe. I don't see anything to be nervous about, unless you're keeping something back from me, human nature asserting itself. Are you? I tell you I'm in a devil of a mess, said Hugh. I didn't mean to say anything about it, but I've told you so much. If you could help me, I would let you. The best thing is to go home to Rene, not just yet, and forget everything about it. Gerard drew his eyelids together and peered at his friend, then rose and walked straight up to him. Do you mean to hint that you accidentally killed that old man? Hugh looked at him incredulously for a moment, and then broke into a derisive laugh. <laughs> you fool, he said. Well, I'm glad to hear it, laughed Gerard, returning to his whisky and soda. Hugh seated himself again in his swivel-working library chair, and ran his fingers through his wavy hair impatiently. For heaven's sake, let us talk of something else, he said. What have you been doing with yourself in Edinburgh? Gerard prolonged his visit for a quarter of an hour, and then went home, leaving Hugh to his blackmailer's interests. "'You're back early,' said Irene. "'Yes, he's in the midst of his briefs. He's a lucky beggar. I wish I had half as many as he.' "'Why are you inconsequent, dear?' said Irene. "'Only the other day you were saying you were tired of practice, wanted to give it up and travel. Surely semper mutabile ought to refer to men. Well, why shouldn't a man get sick of work?' Irene could find no reply, but laid her hand in his. Whatever Gerard said was right. "'How is poor Hugh?' she asked. Gerard laughed with masculine ungraciousness, and withdrew his fingers from her clasp, so as to press down the tobacco in his pipe. "'You always talk of Hugh as if he were a lad instead of a middle-aged man. He's all right, but he has some silly idea that he's in danger of arrest over this heart affair.' "'No!' cried Irene quickly. Looking at him with sudden scare in her eyes. It seems he was mixed up in money matters with Israel, and he was the last person with the old man. That's wrong. Hugh left at eleven-thirty, and the butler saw Mr. Hart at twelve. I don't know, said Gerard. It's all rubbish. There's something behind it that he wouldn't tell me. I know nothing of Hugh's private life. If he's in a mess, he'll get out of it this time, as he has done before. But Irene did not treat the matter so lightly. The face that met Gerard's somewhat shifty blue eyes was anxious and troubled. Suddenly, however, came the illumination of her smile. "'Of course you are right, dear love. It's all rubbish.' But far from rubbish proved Hugh's forebodings when he came home from Chambers the following afternoon. Parsons, the hall porter, desired to speak to him, and accompanied him up the stairs to his flat. He was an honest fellow, grateful to Hugh for countless careless generosities, and at the same time regarding him with respectful awe on account of his somewhat imperious manner. The seriousness of the communication he was about to make agitated him. With many hesitations he stumbled through his story. The police had been making inquiries, had learned the hour of his return on Tuesday morning, and cross-questioned Mrs. Parsons as to the condition of his clothes, as to his general habits, had inquired whether he was carrying a box or parcel. "'I was obliged to tell them that you were, sir,' said the porter, greatly distressed. "'Though I could sooner cut my tongue out than do you any harm, sir.' 
"'Thank you, Parsons,' said Hugh. "'I am greatly obliged to you for telling me. "'I need not say that you can give the police any information concerning me with a clear conscience. "'You can't possibly do me any harm.' The porter went away relieved. Hugh, left alone, went to his spirit-case on the sideboard, and poured himself out a stiff glass of whisky. "'It may be the last,' he said to himself grimly. He drank it off, and lit a cigarette with fingers that trembled just a little. And "'Now for Miller,' he said, striding out of the room. The expected blow had fallen. Arrest was certain. Unless he could account for his night, release was impossible. The circumstantial evidence which he knew could be brought against him was enough to imperil his life, and no one could be more acutely aware than he, a criminal advocate, of the possibility of a chain of specious links, unsuspected by him now, that might bring him parlous to the gallows. Now the gallows is a gruesome thing, which an innocent man, full of the lust of life, cannot contemplate with equanimity. The marriage could be concealed no longer. It was a matter of life or death. Then all would be well, provided only he reached the lindens before a hand was laid on his shoulder. Through the gathering darkness of the dreary February evening he hurried on the accursedly familiar road. It had never seemed so long. As he neared the vague form of the constable advancing on his beat, his heart throbbed violently. Then he laughed scornfully at his fears, as if a policeman on duty would arrest him. Without a doubt he was being shadowed at this very moment, and when the time was ripe, a civil-spoken officer in plain clothes would take him quietly and discreetly into custody. But he felt glad when the front door of the Lindens closed upon him, and he found himself in the warm security of the hall. Samuels, the butler, came down the stairs. "'Miss Hart is very sorry, but she cannot receive you today, sir.' "'Is she in bed?' "'No, sir.' "'Where is she?' "'In the drawing-room.' "'Thank you, Samuels. I must see her.' Brushing past the rather bewildered butler, he mounted the stairs and entered the drawing-room unceremoniously. Minna rose angrily from her chair, keeping her thumb between the pages of the novel she was reading. Dressed in a loose dressing-gown, with her hair pinned up untidily, she was all the more incensed at his interruption. "'I told Samuels,' she began, with a petulant stamp of the foot. "'Yes, I know,' he interrupted. "'I disregarded him. This is not a time for politeness. The police are after me. I may be arrested at any moment. They know that I don't reach home till the morning. I am caught in a trap. I must account for my actions between half-past eleven and seven. She turned as white as a sheet. The novel slipped from her fingers to the carpet. Impossible, she said. What's impossible? That they should arrest you. They have no evidence. Oh, it's absurd. Absurd or not, they will. Rapidly he sketched his position. She listened, motionless and with quivering lips. "'What do you wish me to do?' she asked in a voice scarcely audible. "'It's obvious. You must release me from my promise. I must be able to account for my night, prove my statement.' "'Forfeit my money?' she cried, terror raising her voice. "'Do you know what that would mean to me? This wealth that my father got together is flesh of my flesh and blood of my blood. I can't give it up. It would kill me.' "'It would be your life for mine,' he said ironically. "'You have sworn,' she said. "'If I give my simple promise it would have been sufficient.' "'Are you going to keep it?' he drew himself up. "'We will not discuss that,' he said. "'Would they let you go if you told them?' "'Most probably.' "'And if they did not?' 
there would be a very weak case against me. "'But a wife's evidence is invalid,' she cried, eagerly seeking the loophole. "'There is Anna. But it would be against you to confess you were in the house at that time?' "'Anna could swear to my entrance at twelve by the window. "'It might lead to my being arrested too as an accomplice.' "'I scarcely think so,' he replied coldly. The interview was growing hateful. We could have Anna as a witness to our conjugal relations. She could swear to entering our room at six to wake us. If the worst came to the worst, she might swear she found us asleep. Morality has its limits when it's life or death. Minna sank into a chair and crouched there in a shaking terror. I can't, I, I, I can't lose my money. Very well, he said. You may keep it. I shall take my chance. It will be the same, she said hoarsely, if you said I was your mistress only. Goldberg is an executor under my father's will. He hates me. You know why. The clause in the will would put him on the scent. He would go to Somerset House and discover it all. If I am arrested and brought before the magistrate, can you expect Anna to be equally reticent? Anna is an Oriental. Besides, she starts for Smyrna tomorrow morning. In the face of what I have just told you, would you let her go? he asked sternly. Oh, God! she cried, leaping to her feet with sudden wild passion. "'Don't torture me any more. You've caused enough misery in my life. Why should I sacrifice my heart's blood for you on the first fanciful alarm of danger? Have you ever made one sacrifice for me? Even when you said you loved me, did you give up one hour's philandering with that other woman? You looked upon me at first as a toy to your hand. You told me so in this very room, to gratify your passions.' You married me for my money. You condemned me to that life of scheming and falsehood. You were afraid to face my father like a man. You ruined my life. And now that I am about to build it up again, you come— I don't believe it. It is another lie, for some purpose of your own. Hugh looked steadily at her for some moments, and without condescending to reply, turned on his heel and stalked towards the door. His hand was on the knob when she rushed forward, caught him by the coat-sleeve, and fell at his feet. "'Forgive me, Hugh, forgive me! I did not know what I was saying. All this is driving me mad. Forgive me! Pity me! You once loved me, Hugh. I can't lose my money. Keep our secret, for God's sake!' She sobbed out her incoherent and imploring words in hoarse, frightened tones. A wave of supreme scorn swept through him. Even an hour ago this craven agony of fear and avarice would have been inconceivable but he raised her gently to her feet and drew her a short way from the door. She stood trembling and shrinking before him. "'I have already told you, Minna,' he said in a low voice. "'You can keep your money, if you value it more than my life.' In another moment he was gone. Minna staggered to a couch and lay there, her hands clutching at the loosened cords of her dark hair, in death grapple with the devils that had taken possession of her. But nonetheless she parted from old Anna Casabar the following morning without breathing to her a word concerning Hugh's danger. "'He will come very soon, dearie. Let me show you your dear mother's beautiful country,' said the old woman, amid the final adieu. "'Very soon,' sobbed Minna, clinging round her neck, "'and then we'll begin a new life and forget all this horror. I want to forget it all, forget I was ever married, forget his existence, and everything.' Later in the day she accepted the urgently offered hospitality of Aaron Bebro, one of her father's oldest city friends, whose motherly wife, forgetful of past disdain and derision, gave her warm-hearted welcome. 
She took the girl to her capacious bosom and cried over her a little, and Minna was miserable and frightened enough to feel grateful. During dinner that evening a servant entered and whispered into Mr. Bebrow's ear. He rose hurriedly and left the room. Presently he returned, looking greatly agitated. To his wife's inquiries he replied that it had been a business message. But Minna was seized with a horrible foreboding, and sat through the remainder of the meal sick and dumb, while her kind hosts pressed upon her food and drink. She dared not ask, though she knew what the answer would be. Dinner over, he signed to his wife and grown-up daughter to leave him alone with their guest. "'I have some very serious news for you, my dear young lady. A messenger from Scotland Yard came just now.' "'Have they arrested anyone?' "'The last person in the world, one would have guessed. Prepare yourself for a great shock.' She writhed under these kindly futilities, the more so because she knew that some expression of horrified astonishment was naturally expected from her ghastly farce. It is Mr. Hugh Coleman. It seems impossible, but the officer told me there is a great deal against him. She could express no surprise, but sat paralysed, dreading lest her apparent phlegm should give away her secret. There must be some mistake, she said at last hoarsely. He was our friend, dining with us that night, and he went to the funeral. I remember seeing him there, said Aaron Bebro. "'Will he be brought before the magistrates in the morning?' "'Of course. "'Shall I have to go to, to, to give evidence?' "'Not to-morrow, I'm glad to say, but perhaps afterwards.' Minna rose from her chair. "'This is a dreadful shock,' she said in steadier tones, "'and it has upset me. "'I think I shall go to my room. "'You will make my apologies to Mrs. Bebro, "'and thank you for your kindness.' She looked him full in the face, and held out her hand, which he pressed warmly. "'You are a brave girl,' he said. But once in her own room her nerve gave way. She stood before the mirror, and laughed hysterically. "'Yes,' <laughs> she cried, "'I am a brave girl.'" End of chapter 10 Chapter 11 of Idols by William John Locke this LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Chapter 11 He was remanded for a week, a week of feverish public excitement and of great suspense for those that loved him. His name was dragged through the mire of the roadways, then held up to execration. He had feasted at an old man's table, and before the generous glow of the host's wine had had time to cool, had foully murdered him for money. Imagination boggled at the conception of a meaner miscreant. Thus the man in the street, who is seldom guided by the abstract principle of British justice. The press began to spread abroad a horrible fame. A poet, a brilliant advocate, a man in the public eye. They extolled his achievements. Those to whom his name had been hitherto unknown forgot their ignorance and feigned long acquaintance. His poems were read by self-conscious hundreds. Stories of forensic triumphs recapitulated by halfpenny evening newspapers with sensational exaggeration brought his fame as an advocate whither no poetry ever penetrated. His friends stood by, sickened and helpless. "'If he gets off, there'll be a boom in Kerman's,' said a cynical clubman to a friend. "'He'll be the darling of the boudoir and the champion of the thieves' kitchen. He always was a lucky beggar.' "'Hush, there's merriment at your elbow,' whispered the other. 
but Gerard had overheard. He gave the speaker an inscrutable look and passed on. Habitually taciturn, Gerard spoke very little of his feelings in the matter. His acquaintances who knew of the close friendship refrained from allusion. At home he smoked in silence. Irene, measuring his anxiety by her ideal of the love between Hugh and himself, respected his reserve. But her own pain burned within her and shone from her eyes in a strange light. She waited anxiously with him for a promised visit from Haraway, the solicitor, after his first interview with the prisoner. Haraway was shown into the smoking-room, sat on a straight-backed chair away from the fireplace, and mopped his forehead with his handkerchief. He was a short, stout, florid man, and had walked fast from the police station. Trouble and perplexity had also disturbed legal coolness. "'It's like trying to ride through a brick wall,' he said. "'He won't open his mouth. Same story to me as to the magistrate. Can't bring a single witness to prove his whereabouts.' "'That's absurd,' said Gerard. "'A man can't exist a whole night in London in Stygian solitude.' "'That's what I told him. Cabman, servant, barman, a coffee-stall keeper, anyone would do. Somebody must have seen him.' He says, "'I left the Lindens at eleven-thirty, and I got home at six-thirty. Assume that I have lost my memory completely for those seven hours, and do what you can for me.' "'But can he have lost his memory?' said Irene. "'Such things have happened.' Haraway shook his head significantly. "'Not he. It's pure suicidal obstinacy. You know the kind of man. I'm sure I don't know what to do. There's enough against him already. That confounded security of his was in the missing deed-box. God knows what more the police have up their sleeve. An alibi is the only thing. I told him. Replies that there is no question of providing an alibi. You know, he might almost as well plead guilty at once. What is one to do, Miriam?' "'Cherchez la femme,' replied Gerard. "'Well, can either of you give me any idea? You, Mrs. Merriam?' "'There is someone he is fond of in a way,' said Irene. "'But who can it be? Someone I don't know. But surely, if it is a woman, she will come forward.' "'Don't be too sure of that,' said Gerard. "'I asked him point-blank,' continued Haraway. "'Is the woman—' But before I could get any further, he turns upon me with one of his paladin airs, and tells me he never suggested that a woman was involved. "'That settles it,' said Gerard. "'Either that, or guilt.' "'Heaven knows,' sighed Haraway. "'And that's the man I'd set my heart upon making the biggest criminal advocate of the day.' "'Oh, you must go and use all your influence over him, Gerard,' said Irene, anxiously. "'Do you think I have ever stopped him from doing a pig-headed action, all the years I've known him?' "'But he loves you above everybody. He must listen to you.' "'Why not yourself?' asked Gerard, in a curious tone that caused the solicitor to glance sharply at him. "'We will both go, Gerard, together.' "'Not a bit of good,' said Haraway, rising to depart. "'He sent many kind messages. Says he'll write at length, but won't see you, won't see a soul but me. He's as proud in that cell as Lucifer.' And what the dickens he's got to be proud about in getting himself into this ghastly mess is more than I can imagine. The solicitor gone, Irene turned to Gerard. Haraway thinks it will go ill with Hugh. So do I, if he keeps up this attitude. There is something beneath, said Irene, moving to the stool by the fire near his feet and putting her hand on his knee. We had a talk on the day before. I wrote to you at Edinburgh about it. He was on the point of committing some folly. "'hoped we would not think him a scoundrel. "'What does it mean?' 
Gerald stretched out his arms and clasped his hands behind his head. "'I'm sure I don't know. The man was always like that. One never could tell his next escapade. "'What's the matter? You're shivering.' "'Oh, I'm frightened, Gerard, dear. I have a foreboding that ill will come of it, for all of us.' "'What the dickens has it got to do with you and me?' said Gerard. She sat silent for a while, looking into the flaming abysses and fantastic crags of the fire. Then suddenly she turned, excited, clasped her knees, and looked passionately into his face. "'We must move heaven and earth, Gerard. He is your second self. If he should, if anything should happen to him, he would be with us always, reproaching us with his dead eyes for not saving him. I owe him your life, my beloved, and mine, for without you I should die, Gerard, dear.' She was a little excited, spoke a trifle shrilly. Gerard unclasped his hands and bent forward. Interpreting the gesture according to her heart, she knelt and swiftly closed his arms around her and nestled close to him. "'You may be sure I shall do all I can,' he said. She closed her eyes. The man's calm strength of voice, the hidden strength of his frame, reassured her fears. "'Forgive me for doubting while you are here to save him,' she murmured in her blind faith. A few moments later some domestic duty summoned her away. Gerard rose and stretched himself, and yawned. "'Oh, damn!' he said irritably. Then, lighting his pipe, he strode out of the house and tramped along the heath road, with the air of a man who is justifying to himself a series of expletives. The week expired. He was again brought before the magistrates, and committed for trial. The key turned in the cell door in Holloway Jail, and he was left alone for the night. In a state of semi-sanity he abandoned himself to the ghastly panorama of the day, as it passed and repassed in incoherent fragments before his eyes. He was prostrate with fatigue and strain, utterly brain-weary, incapable of lucid arrangement of ideas, almost of calculating the weight of the evidence against him. Fresh facts had been brought to light. The butler had heard him speak in angry tones when he had entered the room with the spirit tray. The entry in Israel's private ledger, assigning the stolen deed-box as the depository of the £5,000 security, had been confirmed by the confidential clerk. Moreover, the empty box had been discovered, broken open, in the trunk of a hollow tree in the wood behind the lindens. The prisoner had returned with a mysterious parcel of which he could give no account. On searching his rooms after her arrest, the police have found the grate full of scrupulously reduced paper ash. The inference was that this ash represented the stolen bond. It was another instance of the irony that marked this extraordinary freak of circumstances. Even his careful destruction of Minna's letters and all memorials of her was turned into evidence against him. Medical testimony placed one o'clock and five as the extreme limits between which the murder could possibly have been committed. Probabilities pointed to three o'clock. In his sleepless and disordered fancy, the witnesses jostled each other in the box, giving inconsequent scraps of evidence. But clearest before his mind rose the picture of Minna, his wife, the sole person in the universe that could be absolutely certain of his innocence. There she stood, appalling in the wreckage of her beauty, a thin, black, pinched figure, hollow-eyed, drawn-lipped, telling the half-truth that was more damnable than a lie. She had parted from Mr. Coleman at eleven, had gone up to her room, had heard no sound in the house till she was awakened in the morning to learn the horrible news. 
The relations between Mr. Coleman and her father had always been most cordial. He had dined with them that evening, her father in the best of spirits. Mr. Hart had never mentioned that Mr. Coleman was a client. Clients were not visiting acquaintances. That was all. She had not met his eyes, scarcely those of the Crown Prosecutor or the Magistrate, when they questioned her, had replied doggedly, in the deep, hard voice he had grown so familiar with of late. But one year ago it had stirred all the fibres in his body. Today not a vestige of its richness remained. She floated fantastic in his memories. Once, during the night, he fell into a brief half-sleep. She gave him again the brown paper parcel, but loose this time, so that the paper slipped away and revealed a halter. He woke sweating with the nightmare. Anything approaching sleep was thenceforth impossible. The dim, perpetual, inextinguishable light in his cell grew to a maddening irritation. He yearned for the soothing comfort of darkness. He wrapped his head in his bedclothes to shut out the light, but with the ill-success familiar to all who have tried it. So, until the dawn, he remained staringly awake, and the phantasmagoria of his trial swept endlessly on. Faces of friends, anxious, incredulous, seen in the crowded little court, rose up before him. Gerard's and Irene's most continuously. She wore a tight-fitting dark blue jacket and a little toque to match, set amid the fair waves of her hair. He remembered vividly every detail, the white stitching of her black gloves. He strove to keep her image before him, the sweetness of her smile, the trust in her grey eyes. But Minna, hard and sullen, came and blotted out the more gracious fantasy. Again he recalled Irene, the last scene before he was led away to the prison van, when friends crowded round the dock, Gerard among the first. "'It's bound to come right, Hugh. We'll do our best.' Irene had struggled forward, and the others had fallen back, and she put up both hands, which he, leaning over, had taken in his, and he had seen the great pain burning beneath her eyes. "'Oh, Hugh, if our love for you can do anything, use it. God bless you!' A hurried speech, uttered in the swiftness of the hand-clasp. He tried to keep it with him as a charm against the bugbears of the night. But until the warden came at half-past six to wake him, they swam before him in a whirling, reiterative circle, recurring almost rhythmically, like the separate monstrosities of horses in an infernal merry-go-round. Day came, and with it clearness of mind and logical sense of proportion. When Haraway, the solicitor, arrived, he discussed the situation with practised acuteness. His defence was clear. The stealing of the security was too ludicrous an expedient for a man of his intelligence. Besides, its legal value was that of a blank sheet of foolscap. Of this, Hart's confidential clerk had full knowledge. Would a jury believe a man to be so idiotic as to commit a murder in order to steal that which he knew to be worthless? Was it likely that a man who had committed a murder at three o'clock would deliberately postpone his return home, a quarter of an hour's walk, until an hour when his arrival would be certain to attract attention? But Haraway shook his head dolefully. Of course we'll put all that forward, but the self-incriminating stupidity of criminals is a byword. If the attorney or solicitor-general is prosecuting and takes his privilege of answering Gardiner, he will convince the jury of this little fact. It will be much more to the point if you could tell us how he to prove an alibi. That's the infernal part of it. 
No one is such a damned fool as to believe that you were lying drunk and invisible in a gutter all night. You can prove an alibi if you like, can't you? Certainly, replied Hugh, with a baffling twirl of his moustache. But I'm going to do no such thing. Please consider that final. If you and Gardner can't get me off without it, well, I'll hang. Joie mourir in a rien dire. That's the end of it. He put his hands in his pockets and shrugged his shoulders magnificently. The stout solicitor rose with irritation. You are a confounded anachronism. You were meant for the Marquis de, de, de God knows what in the French Revolution. You would think it a fine thing to stay the hangman until you had used your toothpick. You don't understand that a life like yours is of value in our days. You are risking it, braving the gallows for some infernal woman. That's the reason I'm sick of women. So am I, Haraway, replied Hugh coolly. You seem to have got them on the brain. Let us change the conversation. Soon afterwards Haraway departed, and the day wore on. The next passed, and the next, and other days followed in dreary succession. They added ten years to his life. In spite of defiant resolve to consider no phase of the prison discipline and degradation, the taint of the cell ate into his flesh, and weakened his soul with strange cowardices. Sometimes the weight of evidence crushed him overwhelmingly, and he shook in an agony of terror of the consequences. The strain of silence and secrecy suffocated him. Like a diver who has just succeeded his habitual period of immersion, he felt that in another moment his temples would burst and his heart fail. Then he would ask himself passionately the reason of his silence, rebelled against the self-imposed imprisonment of speech. Was she worth the folly of this sacrifice, she whose inconceivable avarice seemed to have annihilated elementary human emotion? If the loss of her money should kill her, were it not better that she should die? To brave the trial, secure acquittal, live through the eternal after-stain of suspicion, for that he was prepared. But to face the gallows, accept her gift of the halter, his courage failed him. The cold sweat of the nightmare broke out from head to foot. He clung desperately to life. Once a shaft of sunlight streamed into his cell and abutted on the opposite whitewashed wall. He sat on his wooden chair and leaned against the bed and watched the dust dancing in the gold. Touching some hidden chord of forgotten association, a child's poetic fancy long ago, perhaps, translating the glory of glistening motes in the quivering mystery of the beam, it awakened an inutterable torture of yearning for the free air of the world. He threw himself on the bed and buried his face in the pillow to prevent a cry from passing his lips. But such crises of weakness were rare, and they were always followed by long intervals of dogged and half-cynical calm. It sunk far beneath his ideals of honour in his marriage with Minnehart, her taunts had been just. He, Hugh Cullman, who had ever before sinned en prince, and had never shrunk from the eyes of man or woman, had played the part of a skulking villain. He had married her for her flesh, for her money, thereby wronging her. He had made her the toy of a week's passion, and then neglected and wounded her. Now was the hour, if any there could be in the world, where he might make expiation both to her and to himself. He would take his chance, meet his destiny, this time at any rate, like a man. 
he would not redeem twenty lives at the price of her money. In his contradictory way, the man was as proud as Lucifer. The knowledge of the anxiety of his sisters, the dear peaceful women who worshipped him as the paragon of all the excellencies, was a perpetual pain. He wrote to them reassuringly, minimised the danger, expatiated upon the point of honour, and knowing their sensitive spot, brought forward, with some twinges of self-contempt, a family pride. Death before dishonour, but death a remote contingency. Thus could his message be summarised. Old Geoffrey Coleman, who had been illustrating the proverb that threatened men live long, also wrote on the subject of the family honour. To save it, he was willing to buy up the security. For history, the reversion was the property of a million wagging tongues. But this Hugh peremptorily declined. The debt now lay between himself and Minna. There was the pound of flesh, but not a drop of blood. Sacred should be the letter of the law. The days passed. He scarce knew how. Eventless, dull, yet filled with cravings for the vivid life of action that had been first his inheritance and then his prize. Their inactivity weighed upon him. He envied his fellow-prisoners upon whom sentences had been passed and who had their daily tasks to execute. Chapel, exercise, meals, reading, sleep, his sole avocations. Now and then came Haraway, and with him Charles Gardner, Q.C., his friend and counsel. Other visitors he refused to receive. Sensitive and pliant as was his nature, yet it was traversed by a seam of flint that rendered it self-sufficing. He was one of those men, capable of chivalrous impulse and lasting loyalty, who nevertheless are unable to reveal themselves entirely to dearest friend or belovedest woman, who reserve, as a jealous right, a portion of themselves for their own exclusive possession. Not only were his lips of necessity closed on this matter, but also, in the battle against circumstances which he had undertaken to fight single-handed, too vivid expression of sympathy was distasteful. His sisters would have clung about his neck and unmanned him. Irene, who would have understood his reticence, he could not receive without Gerard. And his pride shrank from the idea of meeting even Irene. The moment speech and hand-clasp after the trial had been sufficient to convince him of her trust in his innocence. But the thrilling pity and admiration in her eyes he could not bear. Already she had written, "'You are shielding a woman's honour at the risk of your life. But what woman's trumpery honour is worth such chivalry?' And he had written back in grim truthfulness, "'It is no woman's honour that I am protecting, and my attitude is far from heroic.' But he knew her well enough to realise that she would not believe his disclaimer. To destroy her feminine conception of his character was impossible, but he could not bear to masquerade in her presence in the guise of a hero. And Gerard? During the hours of solitude, when the confused impressions of past years had bitter opportunities of crystallization, he had suffered the shock of the discovery that their present friendship was but the simulacrum of the old. A quaint fancy figured it forth in his mind. Once, clad in shells of armour, as most men are clad, they had stood together, gauntleted hand in hand, for mutual defence and common purpose. Long since they crept out, donned other mail, but still stood the hollow figures in futile clasp 
somewhat of a mockery. And a woman came and led them, now and then, each into their own habitations, whereupon they moved the hands up and down in spasmodic greeting. Conceits aside, something had come between them. It was not Irene, he thought, for she had kept them together, making her boast of their perfect friendship. Was the phenomenon negative, merely the cessation of mutual attraction? He could not tell. It was sufficient dismay to find that, at this time of peril, there were many other men with whose companionship he could have borne sooner than with Gerard's. But rather than allow Irene to suspect this, he would have undergone any tortures of isolation. So he awaited his trial in proud loneliness. And from Minna, not a sign of solicitude. End of chapter 11 This is your invitation to a masterclass in engineering and design. Your ticket to go from zero to 60 with the Lexus Performance Line. A feeling this dynamic is invite only. Fortunately, you're invited. Experience the exhilaration of the Lexus Performance Line and some of the best offers of the year on select models at the Invitation to Lexus sales event, now through April 1st. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer.